You're listening to the Burnham Society Podcast. I'm your host, Rowan Bristol, proprietor of Bristol Books. Bristol Books, located on the northwest corner of Greenview and Sheridan, where in honor of the first anniversary of the Occupy movement, I will sit at my desk, beat a drum, and provide no demonstrable service to anyone. Here at Bristol Books, we demonstrate the purest form of anti-capitalism by providing nothing for nothing. Have as much as you like, only at Bristol Books. Today's shout-out goes to the inimitable, indomitable, inscrutable, and unenviable Amy Fox. Although no relation to our store's pet assassin, Amy has made a name for herself by being a consistent made-a-fail and Bristol Books fangirl. And much like a wall-eyed pegasus, she manages to save the day in the most unexpected of ways. Amongst her hobbies are constructing suicidally depressed clocks, pregnancy, and the occasional polishing of drones. Yeah, we don't understand her, but we can't get rid of her, so we learn to love her. To Amy, a heartfelt thank you, and may all of your drones be shiny. Which brings us to today's topic, the seasonal court. You would think that when a culture set an entire city on fire and was responsible for most of the strife, conflict, and misery in a city, they'd be the first to be shown the door. But this is a city that can't stop electing dailies, and whose present mayor, after losing his middle finger in a meat-slicing accident, was rendered mute. This is a town that loves its bastards. Whether it's Al Capone, bathtub Jim Coughlin, the McCaskey family, Cardinal Cody, or Steve Dahl, the worse you are as a human being, the longer your reign in the Windy City. With that in mind, the seasonal court will likely be with us forever. We've spoken a little about the court's beginnings, of the summoning of Talafiara by the city's founders, and the construction of the Columbia Exposition as a gateway to their homelands. But afterwards, things tend to get a little complicated. I considered trying to explain it to you all in detail, but my first chart required two additional dimensions and drove a grad student insane. She only speaks Coptic now and calls herself Mrs. Jesus. With that in mind, I've decided to do something new within the podcast and bring in a guest speaker. Ladies and gentlemen, Tala Fiara, Queen of Winter. Tala? Um, y your majesty? Listen carefully, you bloated little troll. I don't know what pull you have with the old town school of black magic, but the moment your little wish ends, I'm going to take what's left of your soul and have it squeezed back into its natural state so I can feed it to the squirrels! What's live? What red light? Who can hear me? Oberon's balls, you've imprisoned me in a radio station? Well, if the Moody Bible Institute couldn't hold me in one of these, you certainly can't. Now, what to do in the twenty minutes before your death? Might as well tell you a story. Good evening, my darling devoted subjects. Your queen in exile, Talafiara, lady of the Summerlands, founder of the White City, and Queen of Winter speaks to you tonight. Apparently, we have been summoned from our domain to explain the seasonal court and its history. Now pay attention. I'm only going to say this once, and it's rather important. 
Richard Joseph Daly was a terrible person, and his entire pig-eyed clan should be boiled in a rendering vat. Done. Now can I go home? Fine! There might be little more to the story. <clears throat> My lover, Taryn, and I had a lovely life of torment and torture within the Summerlands. We weren't king and queen. Who wants that kind of drama? Yes, Mr. Bristol, I know what you want. However, this is my time and my story. Sometime after your civil war, the esoteric order of Midwestern merchants broke through our veil and made us an offer we couldn't refuse. I mean, we couldn't. Magic circles, cold iron, the whole lot. They made their fortune selling trinkets, baubles, and meat but couldn't bear to live in a city that looked like a composite of a dime store and an abattoir. <laughs> Messieurs Field, Armor, Shed, and Ward felt that their vision of a better place needed the kind of boost that only we, the bright ones, could provide. Also, they thought we were European. It's amazing what mortals think is important. So where did these self-possessed little sorcerers take us? to a swampy cesspool smelling like pig shit and human misery and overgrown with onions and garlic. The mortals were breeding with the fair folk and there were creatures from worlds even I hadn't heard of. It was disgusting. Publicly, we were treated like foreign dignitaries with iron manacles hidden by gilded carriages as we were brought around the city to share in their dream. My first warden was Potter Palmer. Now there was a man who knew how to respect a woman. I had everything I wanted at my disposal, and in return, I found him little sissy. Delightful girl. Much smarter than my captors, and such a love of art. Both of them were so easy to inspire. <laughs> I hear their graves are as splendid as their hotel used to be. No matter how pretty a prison was still a prison. Their spells held us within the confines of the town, and each night we were locked away in Potter Palmer's first hotel, coated in occult trickery. No one holds the bright ones against their will. The solution to my plight was simple. I provided the charm and inspiration, setting their imaginations ablaze. Taryn did the glad-handing and the public planning. We arranged for the order to summon our guardsmen, Eamon and Rhiannol, as well as my son, Math. They were such merchants. If two were good, five had to be amazing. Soon, within their dreams and schemes was the only solution possible, and we fulfilled their wish by burning their wretched city to the ground. What? That's what you want me to say, right? That's why I'm here, isn't it? Why mince words? No, I didn't light the fire myself, but with all that aspiration and all that desire, fate finds a way to make your wishes come true. That and wishing in the presence of a pentacle of fairies. It's why my boys were summoned. Do you think I could have tolerated math for a single second if I didn't have a world to destroy? We were able to take their petty dreams and classist insecurities, ignite it with incompetence and horrific planning, and fan it with fear and despair. 
that conflagration remains one of the single most beautiful things I have ever created. But you can't rest on your laurels when you have a world to take over. With the burning of most of their sacred objects and locations, we were free to do what we wanted. And field and shed and ward were just dumb enough to believe that what we wanted was what they wanted. Field and his lot had a plan, and the engineers and architects to make it happen. Fueled by the emotions and energy of the fire, my little family were able to take their artists, designers, and magicians and feed them power to match their imagination. It was then I was introduced to my beloved Henri Sullivan, who taught me how to bind nature and iron. And Tiffany, I swear your entire world would have burned to a cinder if it wasn't for that delightful man. He could bind the soul of a freshly bloomed lily into glass and iron. He was a fairy torture garden. Shamey escaped and fled to New York. Hmm. But those two showed me how to make cold iron into art. I would never be shackled again. I fell deep into Daniel Burnham's dreams, so very much like my treasured summerlands, and filled him with the image of a perfect city. A white city. My city. I even posed for the statue of their goddess. Fitting. Hollibaird, Roche, Root, Burnham, and Sullivan. Five of what you call the seven sacred schools of architecture. I could have changed the world with them. They began to understand the city they were creating was just a little too much like my homeworld and started plotting their own. Field, Ward, and Palmer were too long under my power and they did anything, I asked. Shed simply went mad gained a fetish for fish, from what I heard. They brought me magic from the four corners of the world, exiles from my land scattered through legend. Had the whole thing lasted just one season, just one, the gates to my world would have opened, and you'd all be wearing silver chains around your filthy, dying necks. <sighs> Daniel and his men were dreamers, but they were also mortals and had a mortal understanding of impermanence. Very few of the buildings of the White City were stone and mortar. Most were constructed with wood, paper, and painted with airbrushes. And perhaps, perhaps I became too involved in this dream, saw only my world brought to life. I spent too much time with Sissy Palmer and the artists. I presumed it would all last forever. Charles Deering, my personal slave, had found dragon eggs in his travels. Hatching them would have ensured my dominion. Well, they hatched, and all the wonder and inspiration of the city flooded into them and incinerated my lovely city. The backlash of magic and fire overwhelmed me, killing my hold on Field and his partners. They worked with the architects and bested my family and I. Of all of us, only I was taken prisoner and held for my supposed crimes. They blamed my vanity and not their small-mindedness on the disaster, and I was held in a prison not of iron, but of cold clinical reason. My wonder and beauty was pressed down like a bubble at the bottom of the ocean. 
You can still see them in the dollhouse of the Museum of Science and Industry. Despite the disaster, nearly everyone involved in the building of my city thrived. Bolstered with the seven sacred schools of architecture, they built the city they desired. Art Deco chained our powers to rigid lines and structures. Wright stole nature from us. They even imprisoned a goddess on LaSalle Street and blinded her with aluminum. My family fought back, inspiring thieves, criminals, murderers, performing epic and horrible deeds to bring ruin to their plans. But Burnham never forgave. He formed an order of his own, funded by the new city fathers, and they fight us to this day. I lost faith in my family. Terran tried to rebuild a new gate to our world at Navy Pier, but the second world fair this city held was locked tight in human inspiration. His star had fallen, and I needed a new toy. My guards, Eamon and Riano, knew some delightful dark elves hiding out in the foundries of Indiana. They arranged for me to be kidnapped from my prison, and honor-bound and outraged Taran came to my defense. <laughs> the foolish little man! <laughs> I've never seen anyone killed with molten iron before. I hope to see it again before I fade away. They took the slag containing his ruined corpse and poured it into a mold. I'm sure if we went to Lincoln Park, I could find him again. I think my son, Math, had been too long in the city. All this revenge and betrayal outraged him for some reason. I couldn't explain to him that back home, this was just flirting. <laughs> Eamon understood, and he remained by my side. Rhiannon took to mortal mortality and sided with my traitorous son. By then, the fairies and the supernaturals who had stayed after the Columbia Exposition fire started taking sides, either under maths or my banner. We hid our skirmishes amongst the gang wars and labor uprisings that took fire from our inspiration. And for a while, it was fun. The best thing about mortals, well, it is what it says on the tin. I just love watching you die. It's a shame that maths and my war was confined to the city. All my cousins in Europe got to watch the real fun. Your wars took away so much of our power. It wasn't just the people gone. It was the attention. Hopes, dreams, and fears were all focused so far away. And when it was done, None of you seemed to care. Math and I were fighting over a territory that was getting smaller and smaller by the day, and there could only be one ruler. We planned to have war in the grass and lagoons of Jackson Park amongst the ruins of my beautiful city. It was to be terrible, glorious, and wonderful. I'd never felt more passion than when I was plotting to put an arrow in mine own son's heart. None of us even paid attention to the new mayor. Richard I was not a wizard. He did, however, have a propensity for violence and segregation. He gathered our old enemies, as well as his personal thugs, the Georges, to bring us down before our battle had even begun. He claimed to know of places in the world so dead of inspiration, we would simply fade out of existence. I shouldn't have been surprised. He was a lawyer, after all. 
Through the years, we hadn't noticed how the city had changed. Vanderoe had buildings designed solely to block our greater powers, and the four of us, even if we were to settle our differences, weren't as powerful as all the forces against us. We had lost our fifth. With Taran dead, I had rendered us nearly powerless. Richard mapped out a plan. The four of us would swear an oath or be banished. Four seasons, one for each of us. Only one of us would have power, and only as long as the seasons lasted. I would be free, but lose most of my power. My son and my gods would gain, restrained only by the seasons. The dreams of the city would be divided amongst us. I don't think Richard expected any of us to say no. But Rhiannon, over the years, had grown quite sick of how our people do things. He stood up, said he had better things to do than squabble over a slaughterhouse, waved his hand, and swanned out of the office. I think he's in Greece now. We were all shocked, but Rhiannon had given us a gift. The oath required four seasons. Richard couldn't contain us forever. We could agree to the oath, and it wouldn't bind us, because there would always be a season missing. We all swore to Richard's words. He pointed his porkish finger at me and declared, Winter! I assume he was being ironic. To Amen he gave autumn, and my son, forever in opposition to me, was given summer. And a little pixie who was at the window listening to all the shouting thought it was all a game. She shouted, Spring! at the top of her lungs. Richard pointed at her and repeated her words. Richard's will. All of our thwarted magic. And all the buildings in the city. These sealed the oath in place in one word. That diminutive little bitch locked all of our fates. Each of us rules, but none of us truly reigns. In time, we found our places. Math became another Taran, stroking the egos of the rich and entitled. Amen grew darker and darker, communing with the dead and the things made of shadow. He's somewhere deep inside the Rose Hill Mausoleum. I had the remnants of my city, my gardens, and all the city's memories. My fire gets colder and colder every year. And that little pixie? Well, delightfully, fate provided a revenge that even I couldn't imagine. Pixies, you see, only live from spring until autumn. They die at first frost. But that little flit is bound by Richard's oath. Every single year, that same pixie is born, grows, withers, and dies. And she will, forevermore. I get to celebrate the beginning of my reign every year with her painful demise. Oh, and speaking of demises, Mr. Bristol, I do believe we were talking about your messy death. <sighs> Now, the remaining staff at the Burnham Society podcasts would love to hear from you. You can reach them through the Burnham Society Facebook page at 
burnhamsociety.madeafail.net or by email at rowan.bristol at gmail.com. Until next week, remember that winter is coming. Farewell.